I would like to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John. And we'll be in John chapter 2. We've been studying for some time now. And uh, finally made our way to the second chapter. And it looks as if we're going to knock that out in two weeks. Having spent two months in the first chapter. And that's a testimony to the type of literature this is. Where we go from a more theologically packed list of of claims that John is making as to the truth of Christ and who he is, arguing his point that he gave to us at the very end, where he describes these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. Well, he, when he gets into the support material for that, they are much like you would listen to testimonies brought into a court setting and in narrative form, they lay out what took place. Well, that's what we're reading this morning. And uh, beginning in verse 13, you can listen along as I read. I'll be reading from the ESV translation. And in verse 13 of chapter 2, we read this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons take these things away do not make my father's house a house of trade verse 17 his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. John tells us in verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Verse 22, when therefore he raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. There again, con concluding that paragraph, the result of that testimony brought belief in those that heard it. This is God's word. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So let's pray. Father in heaven, our Bibles are open, we prepare to study, Lord give us the ability to listen, bring this story to life, first in our understanding, and then second in our wonder, and Lord we just ask that you give us grace to be obedient to what we see here, take what we see that was, and help us to make sense of it now where we are. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, have you ever seen anybody at any point in your life, and this would be one of those things that would be on rare occasion, but someone who usually is a mild-mannered, reserved, uh, compassionate, kind, 
a very thoughtful and sensitive person, but for the moment, absolutely overcome by anger. And it's usually that type of a situation where those of us who don't see this very often begin to take note because of the fact that it's uncharacteristic of a person who, for most of their life, is completely opposite of that. Really doesn't make a big deal if we know somebody who flies off the handle at the drop of a hat to get upset. And we might even say to those that are uninitiated, oh, he does this all the time. But for someone who never does that, or rarely ever does that, to do that, that raises the seriousness of what you're observing. There must be something for them to get upset over, or they wouldn't be upset. Uh, perhaps you've ever been in a situation where the person who is upset is actually upset about you. Something that you've done. You're in on this in some way, but at that point, you don't know how you're involved in this. Now, we could just probably uh, waste several minutes of our time together bringing up situations where that might occur. Uh, probably the best place to lay that would be between that marvelous union God designed when he arranged Eve for Adam. So it's usually us men who have to decide which is better to do first. To apologize and then figure out what we did. <laughs> or to figure out what we did and then apologize for it. But there are those times where we've gotten ourselves into something. Someone very close to us, and it might be your brother or your, your, your mom. Or you fill in the blank. But because of you in some way, they're upset and you don't know why. All of that is true of what we've seen here. Except we're talking about the Son of God who is angry at the temple with those who are in the process of carrying out the Passover sacrifices. This is no small thing. This is a huge thing. And it's going to be, uh, at, at least to some length, difficult for us to understand um, being removed to millennia and an entire culture, east versus west, removed from this. So we've got our work cut out for us this morning to first understand, and then second of all, how do we obey this? What does it mean to us? Well, most of our time this morning will be spent on trying to understand why Jesus is angry. Now we can go straight to the text and pull out his speaking part and see if we can find it there. And that is where we're going to find it. But a little bit of background will do us good and it'll help layer up and color up uh, this episode here. This, this sign that uh, Jesus is performing, not necessarily a miracle as it were, but this means something. And John's bringing it in as evidence to support those claims that have been made. So first we'll have to understand what's going on. And the easiest way to answer that question is that Passover is going on. That, that has to do with the setting. And this is Israel's largest annual feast. As far as we can tell by the information we have and those that are qualified to make uh, statements and bring their opinions to bear, uh, there was between one and 300,000 inhabitants of Jerusalem at any given time. That was about the size of, of the city and its population. However, 
during Passover, that number would swell to one million or more. That's quite a bump in uh, population. The influx of people were there uh, to observe the feast, make sacrifices, and pay the census tax. That's what they were there for, and this would take place on an annual basis. And I don't know about you, but you could just imagine what this would be like. And it's so different. We worry about traffic patterns here with automobiles and traffic lights and wonder when they're going to automate those and do some study on when the big group is and how to get them through quick so all the people that are taking you know, rights on reds don't eat up and fill up the light before we ever get a chance to even go. You probably know which one I'm talking about here. <laughs> they didn't have that going on, but you could just imagine the foot traffic and the animals and what's necessary to stay over, especially those coming from long distance. I remember shortly after uh, getting settled here, uh, I, I wanted to attend what I'd been attending since I was a child, uh, the fair back in October. And had a ticket, was busy this time, been on vacation for part of it, got back in town and I thought, I'll go on the last day. It's a Sunday after all, people are resting. That's what they're supposed to do, right? So me and Olivia, the rest of the family stayed back for a while. We tried to get over there. We thought it'd be smart to ride the bus from the mall. That line was wrapped around the mall. So then I know a way we'll get in. That way didn't pan out. And the other way didn't pan out. And then we started using Google on what color the roads were. Were they red or were they yellow? Yellow roads might get us there. And then we can walk in on foot. You want to believe from Sunset Road to the fairgrounds took us almost four hours. I still think that's nothing compared to 300,000 people in a small walled city going to a million over a weekend. And they didn't have Google with yellow roads and red roads and things like that. So with an estimated, take this, quarter million sacrifices being made in one afternoon. There's the hub of that whole Passover feast, weekend, festival. And the temple complex was the grand central station. That's where it all took place. So Jesus at the temple on this afternoon was one in a million. Probably fit in pretty good. And when Jesus arrived, John tells us at the temple complex, he found, this is what John chooses to explain that Jesus is seeing, oxen, sheep, and pigeons, as well as money changers. The animals were for the sacrifices in order of wealthy to poor. The bigger the animal, the more well-to-do those who would purchase it. And there were provisions for the poor, which would have been uh, pigeons or turtle doves. And then the money changers were there to change out all the Roman money, which would have been prolific in the surrounding area. But anything with the Caesar's likeness on it was, uh, was not allowed in the temple complex. That would be a defilement of the temple. So all that had to be changed out to Hebrew money, and that was what you paid the tax with. Now, what was going on at the temple here this day through the eyes of Jesus told by John We'll go ahead and take care of this part first to set the table for really getting to the answer to that question. Why is Jesus angry? Uh, 
There are at least four different ways the things that are going on at the temple that day were wrong. Uh, where what the temple had been designed and purposed to do was being co-opted by other interests. And we'll look at these four. We'll move through them quickly. But if you notice in verse 16, and this is the one piece that Jesus gives in explanation before his discussion with those who come to him and say, what, what have you done? Don't make my father's house a house of trade. So his father's house, as he calls it, we know at least one thing. It wasn't to be a house of trade because he said, don't do that to it. And the word trade there uh, from Greek is emporion. Sounds like emporium, doesn't it? Uh, my wife worked at a coffee shop called Main Street Coffee Emporium. You'd expect more than just coffee and some food there. You'd expect a whole wide range of merchant, house of merchandise. But what they had there was really good. And it sounded nice. Main Street Coffee Emporium. But Jesus says, don't make that out of this temple. This is sanctified. There's only a handful of things we do here. And house of merchandise doesn't fit that designation. So don't do it. Matthew's account, we know that Jesus also called them robbers. That is, they were cheating people for personal material gain and gouging them on these transactions, either for money or for buying their sacrifices. So here's the first wrong. It was wrong of them to extort money from those who were there to make sacrifice. And really, that's nothing new. It's wrong to cheat people for any reason. Old Testament has plenty of rules on how to do business fairly. And this is not one of those. So that was number one. Number two, um, with, with that in mind that trading for profit isn't necessarily wrong in itself, uh, the place where they were doing it is what was off. It used to be that that business, all the trading of the animals was done on the other side of the Kidron Valley. But at this point it had been moved now it was moved to the front porch of the temple. And that wasn't the right place to put it. So the second thing that was wrong with this story was for them to use the temple for their business. There's nothing wrong with business. But this was, this was bad business, he's already said. And this was bad business in the front yard of the church. So that's two things that are wrong. Now, let's think of the service they were actually providing. Money and animals. And then again, in the temple and for excessive profits. Think of it this way. Would it be impossible to bring your own lamb from wherever you were coming from? No. Would it be convenient to do so? Probably not. Um, it's bad enough to have to find a vehicle to put all my kids in. Uh, I don't know where you carry a small lamb or a cage of, of, of birds, but it would have its difficulty. Uh, the same is true for the, the right Jewish money. It wouldn't be impossible. You could get some and save it till you come back next year. There are ways to do this, but it may present some challenges. So the question here, the service they were providing had in some part convenience attached to it. And boy, in America, we know quite a bit about the profitability of convenience. Um, I mean, good grief. I know I've got some couponing moms in here. 
and the whole way they try to lure you in at the bulk stores of buying a lot hoping that you won't use the half of it before the other half goes bad and there's ways to really just put a fine point on how all this thing works but those who care about that I just want it now that's expensive I just want it easy that's expensive I want it to taste good that's probably not happening after the first two does it matter what it tastes like that's the question I want to I want to ask here because not that giving and sacrifice, which are forms of worship here, are necessarily required to be difficult or inconvenient. The Lord didn't purposefully make it difficult just so you could be obedient in the sacrificial system. But does trying purposefully to remove the difficulty of it cheapen it in any way? That's a good question to ask. It's an honest question. Does it change anything? Is convenient worship or easy worship any more or less meaningful? Here's another way to look at it from a different angle. Is there anything such as convenient discipline? Those of you that would say, I appreciate the discipline my mother and my father gave me. Would you now have opted for a more convenient form of that discipline? Or was the struggle involved in it precisely what makes it valuable to you? What about convenient character? That's even worse. What about convenient commitment? Sometimes I run these things past Corey just to see if, you know, it doesn't make it by her. I, I usually save it for some other time when I don't ask her first. Any couple that would come in for marriage counseling and the first question would be, now how many weeks do we have to meet? <laughs> you know, I, I was just asking her, if, if, if you had sniffed my angling for some convenience in our courtship together, would, would that have changed anything about this arrangement? So how we give, how we worship, there's methods we do this by. Is convenience important to you? And at what cost to the real meaning of what it is we're actually doing? Now, we're in 2019 now. And we're very removed from this setting. So it's probably impossible to assess how much convenience is baked into the average church ministry these days. But you have to admit there's a big difference between someone driving up and saying, I really like this visitor parking. And someone saying, let's shop all these churches and find the one who nobody asks us to do anything. Where we can intentionally fall through the cracks and be just pure consumers of whatever it is we want there. And we'll, we'll leave everything else on the plate that we don't. I'd say that's not how God set that all up. So I'm going to go ahead and say it was wrong of them to commodify certain aspects of worship here. And turn it into something that can be bought and sold to the highest or lowest bidder. I don't think that's right. Now the money changers had set up their exchange in what was known as the court of the Gentiles to be precise. And Jesus uses the word for court rather than temple when he describes this to begin with. And uh, the outer court was where the Gentiles were able to gather and view from a distance but no further this was allowed so they could see what was going on where they were not able to go. They weren't children of the covenant, so they couldn't enter. 
but there was a place for them so they could see what was going on. There's even a sign there which uh, was very welcoming to any guest that might want to look. It said, on pain of death, don't go any farther than this. Which isn't the best way to build relationships. If you remember back from the Old Testament, from the very earliest language of the covenant with Abraham, you will be a blessing to not just your descendants, but the whole world. I'm going to show them how I look through you and your display of me and my glory. This was an absolute wreck as far as that goes. God's intention was that Israel always be a blessing to the nations. This scene is not a blessing. In fact, it shows contempt for these people. To put it very explicitly, let the animals defecate in the court of the Gentiles. After all, we call them dogs, don't we? Don't do it over here. Do it over there where it doesn't matter. And I think perhaps at this point that's about all the Son of God can take. He's watched all these things line up. And there's indication here as to how he took all this in over time. I don't think he immediately walked in and snapped. That wouldn't fit him. So at this point, it's easy enough to see Jesus is angry. And from the evidence that we've compiled so far, it seems to be in response to what he found to be wrong at his father's house. Let's listen again to the thing that he said in verse 16. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So we can pull out of that at the minimum, the very least, he is saying, this is not what my father had in mind for this place. Now in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And this is the first of two editorial comments that John is going to give us where he's explaining something that didn't even make sense to them until after Jesus was dead, buried, risen, and ascended into heaven. And that's going to be important later. But he's saying here, zeal for your house. That was a prophecy. That there's, it dawned on them that they'd watch that be fulfilled in the way Jesus was acting at his father's house. Now the word zeal there sounds a lot like another word we use occasionally. Greek pronounces it zealous. Sounds a lot like jealous, doesn't it? Well, that's because it's the same word. In a favorable sense, it's like the word ardor. In an unfavorable sense, it's jealousy as of a husband. You know, there's a right way to be jealous. Anyone messing around with a man's wife has all the rights in the world to be jealous for that because that is his, promised to him mutually in a covenant called marriage. So you don't mess with this. All of that is off limits to you. He's got a right to be jealous. And Jesus has every right to be jealous by the violations he's seeing against the house God purposed for something other than what was going on. So he's jealous here. He's angry over the misuse of his father's house. We'll put it that way. That's specific. Jesus is angry. We're answering the question. Over the misuse of his father's house. Namely, that it was being used for something other than which it was designed for. That is why he's mad. So how does he show his anger? And then we'll take a little bit out of that and make sure we understand what this house was for to begin with. Because that's something that John basically assumes. That all the readers will know the significance of that temple, what it was designed for, and why Jesus is mad. 
We'll have to do that here in a moment. But let's look at what he did. Verse 15 says that he made a whip out of cords. That means he didn't bring it with him. So this wasn't premeditated, first degree anger. This was second degree, aggravated assault, if that's what you want to call this. Uh, advancing on them with this whip that he'd made himself. And this whip couldn't hurt anybody. It could scare an awful lot of people. That's what it did. And if we're careful to notice the, the birds that could fly away and never be found again, he, he asked that they take them out if they were left in the cage. I don't know. But can you feature the creator of the universe sitting at his father's house? You know, last week we were talking about Jesus sitting at a wedding. Well, this is Jesus sitting at the temple as a quarter million animals are dying in symbolic fashion to cover sins that Jesus is there to, in about three years, pay for himself as a final sin sacrifice. But he's sitting there and perhaps gathered the cords off the floor that they tied the feed together with or, or, or the animals themselves, and he's braiding a whip. Now, if he made really good wine last week, I suppose... He could make a really good whip, at least one that would do its function. The tip of that thing has to break the sound barrier to crack like a whip is supposed to. And it needs to be a certain length. And uh, I don't know if you've ever chased anybody around the house with a wet towel. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not hard to get that action, but out of the things that were there, you've got Jesus patiently observing what's going on and displaying anger in a controlled way. He didn't fly off the handle. So let's make sure we do not miss the opportunity to imagine what this must have looked like, or even more so, what kind of man could pull this off? Did you ever wonder why nobody just grabbed him and took him out of the place? It was as if everyone was so stupefied by the authority this man had to do what he did that nobody did anything until it was over. They talked to him later. So John tells us he did at least three things with this whip. First of all, he drove them all out with the animals. I think that's funny because usually whips are used on animals, not people. But the people seem to run right out with the animals. Nobody wants to stay. Then, and these seem as if they're, they're increasing in escalation of, of dramatics. He poured out their money changers' coins. And it would seem if they're all out, then they're standing on the edge of a big circle. Anybody watch those uh, Blue Planet 2 documentaries you can see on Netflix now? They got these aerial shots where these killer whales are going through these big, massive balls of bait. And there's like this buffer around them where as they move this, this no man's land of bait, they don't even get near him. So when this breaks out and he chases them away in the animals, they didn't run away because they're all watching, but they've got the safe buffer and they're watching what happens. And then he starts pouring out all the money. And you know what that sounds like if you've ever dropped an offering plate, right? Especially when there used to be change in it. I don't know if anybody uses change anymore, but we had big heavy metal ones and the floor under the pews uh, one place was hardwood. That's a good sounding board, right? 
And all the change goes out. And it goes under people's feet and you can't get it. You have to tap them on the shoulder and they pick it up and hand it to you. A lot worse than dropping your pen. But think about that. The money's going everywhere. And just and some of it rolling in different directions. So it's just a feast for the eyes. And then if that isn't enough, he turns the tables over. And if you've ever watched any of these old westerns, you know it's on and, and the, the, the fight when they start turning over the tables. Everything goes everywhere. It's, it's, it's not like pulling the tablecloth off and everything. This is toss it. Everything flies to the wind. This is what he's doing. And everybody's watching. And nobody's saying anything until it's all over. So this is what we're, this is the story we're told. So what does this mean? What justifies this outburst of anger? Well, there's more to this that those present would have over us. We're uninitiated. They were in on it. Love to talk to people who stood there and watched it that day. But Jesus is rightly angry on behalf of his father because his father's house had been co-opted by other interests. Obviously, those interests were not what God had in mind. We've been that far at least already. But to know what God had in mind for this temple complex, we need to go back to the dedication of the first temple. And I'll just summarize this, but if, if you want to go back later for homework, this is Second Chronicles 6 and 7. And this is where Solomon was praying. And in his prayer is a long description of ways in which God's people with repentant hearts can come to this place and he's asking God to be faithful to his promises to meet them there and to forgive their sins. That was the place where men would transact business with God in a place that he would dwell. It was to be his dwelling place. There he would meet his people on the basis of humble prayer and repentance. And you might even remember from the story of Solomon how when he got finished praying, fire from heaven fell. It chased the priests out. They couldn't get back in. And the people fell on their faces. And they all prayed. Very dramatic demonstration of God's Shekinah glory falling on this place. Be much less dramatic when it lifted off and left. As the people turned their backs on God. Never to return until about 400 years later. With the last prophet. Speaking in the wilderness. Proclaiming he's about ready to come. And that would be Jesus. But anyway, we can get off into uh, prophetic rabbit trails here. In Luke 18, Jesus begins a parable by saying, Two men up w- went up to the temple to do what? To pray. And if you recall, which one went home justified? The one who was proud and thought he was special? The one who beat on his chest in humility, repentance, and ask, who 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 dealt with who met with God that day and left justified? The man in humble repentance through real prayer. The temple that Jesus called his father's house was to be a house of prayer, where God had promised to meet man. This might be the most important line of the whole message. You ready? But on whose terms? Who gets to set the terms of how we access the presence of God Almighty? God does. 
We trifle with those terms at our own peril. So the point here, God alone has the right to determine the substance of true worship. Put another way, God alone has the right to determine the terms of man's access to his presence. The next paragraph will bring all of this together. Let's get uh, verse 18. This is the people's response. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? You could, you could reword that without damaging the message. What do you have to say for yourself? By what authority have you done this? Who do you think you are? Give us something. Help us understand who, who you think you are. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now Jesus uses a different word there, temple. The inner court. And he's referring to himself. John tells us this. Verse 21. They laugh about it and say, this place took 46 years to build. You're going to build it back in three days? They think it's a joke. But at the end of the story, this is what makes the disciples believe. So... Jesus' answer to their challenge was actually not to answer their challenge because no one, including his disciples, had any idea what he was talking about. If I were to just poll the audience here, you've all got your little electronic devices and you had some options here. What on earth does he mean by tearing down the temple and building it back? Because these guys don't know. What does he mean by this? And we need to know that all the apostles didn't know. Nobody there on that day but Jesus knew what he was talking about. Later it would make sense to them. And there's one other place where they ask for a sign and he said, I'll only give you the sign of Jonah. He was in the belly of the fish three days. And then he was spat out. Both of those have to do with a picture of what Jesus would be doing later, right? And what was that? Dying. And then raising. So... John being very helpful in his comments on the meaning of what Jesus said, having himself understood it way later down the road. Um, what we understand by it now having 2020 and what John saw in time. The answer to the question on what authority do you do something like this, showing yourself in this display of anger, Jesus' answer is simply this. On the authority of my death and resurrection, I cleaned up this temple. Now, what significance does that have? What would that mean? Well, he would, through the fulfillment of the old covenant and the inauguration of the new covenant, take the place of the temple. After the veil of the temple would rend about the time it got dark on earth, that would show the whole world this Holy of Holies isn't Holy of Holy anymore. Come on in. I've been telling you for centuries to stay out. But now... Come on in because it, it doesn't matter anymore. I choose to deal with man differently. Jesus will take the place of the temple. You don't have to go to the temple to pray anymore. After one is saved, they talk to Jesus from their heart where the Holy Spirit dwells. So he's going to take the place of prayer, the place of the sacrificial system, the whole thing. From his cross forward, man wouldn't need those things to access the Father. Isn't that what we've been reading in John 1, 1, that Jesus was God? In John 1, 14, Jesus became flesh. In John 18, Jesus was here to show us the Father. He's now the access. You don't need the temple or sacrifice anymore. How did he put it? No man cometh to the Father but by me. That's what Jesus says. 
I'm cleaning this place up because I'm about to put it out of business. Not that it doesn't mean anything anymore. It'll mean a lot. But its function isn't the same. So Jesus is right to be angry at the rejection of his Father's grace because he was there as the Lamb of God to pray the, pay the price for God's grace. How does God love the whole world? How is that transaction complete that God would just choose to forgive some? By the blood of his own Son. It had to get paid for somehow. God sweeps no sin under the rug. So Jesus was about to pay for it. He could put it that way if he wanted to. I'm cleaning it up because I've bought the whole place. Including you. It's mine now. I'm it now, actually. That's how this is going to work. So the point here is that God alone has the right to determine the substance of true worship. The right to determine the, man, the terms of man's access to his presence. Because he paid for it. And his righteous anger is a sign of his seriousness against sin. All sin is stacking up on the account he's about to go pay down. So in conclusion, we got to go quick on this. What do we make all this? This is a very Jewish story so far, very prophetic story. Theologically, there's a wonderland of, of all these things coming together. If you were to attach a string to each other's to the verses all through what we've just covered today, you've You've just about blacked out much of the Bible's text with yarn. But what does this mean for us? Here's a caution we need to make sure we're very careful of. As far as an application of a passage like this, we need to make sure we don't look for a one-to-one -one exchange on misbehavior in the temple as if it's the same as misbehavior in the church building. A lot of sermons turn into... You know, Jesus cleansed the temple of all the stuff that shouldn't have been there, so pastor's going to cleanse this church of all things shouldn't be in it. That's not what this is about. Because remember, the temple's not the place of access to the God, the Father, anymore. And the church isn't either. The church is a body, not a building. And we get the building of the church stuck with the building of the temple, and we can make mistakes the temple as a place of man's interaction with God has been fulfilled. The temple of God is now the heart of the believer. And the church body is the house of God, not the building. So there's no one-to-one -one exchange. But, before everybody says, that's good, zip my Bible up, learn a good history lesson today, let's get out of here. We want to beat everybody else to where we're going to eat for lunch, right? Nope, there's still some left. God alone has the right to determine the substance of true worship. That still applies, whether you're in first century Palestine or you're in 2019 Fuquay Varina or whatever church you're attending. And it's through a relationship with the Son, Jesus Christ. That, that's the, 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 the uh, go-between, uh, the advocate. It's Jesus. Um, in that regard, it's just as easy to see how the terms of access are just as easy to trifle with as they've always been. And that's man's bent to try to make these things work a little better for us instead of taking them as God has put them. So in rapid fire, let's go through those words we used earlier as to what was wrong with the temple. We'll see if 
they have any application as to what might be wrong with our attempt to draw people toward their access of God through His Son, Jesus. What about commodification? Do we do that anymore? I think we're actually better at it than they were then. So many churches today, you don't need to be worried whether or not you could bring sales into the church you can pretty much use that church house as a clearing house for about anything you want to do as long as you can make it sound churchy um but i think there's a great warning here we preach as if jesus is some sort of life enhancement so come on and get your perks that's not the way it was designed and i could get into trouble here i'll leave it you're smart people you know how to apply this and that's the holy spirit's job anyway What about carelessness? Are we ever guilty of playing fast and loose with things that are sanctified, set apart? Grace is a very precious gift. We can make it so down home and user friendly that it can lose its set apartness and be worthless to those that need it the most. What about convenience? Do you think we're ever guilty? Of offering the Lord that which cost us nothing. Why would we ever give the Lord something that we got a deal on? I remember listening to a guy tell me about an engagement ring he bought and the awesome deal he got on it. And I said, buddy, that probably needs to be the last time you ever tell anybody what you just told me. And certainly, there's one person it never needs to get back to. (laughs) And then what about callousness? Do we ever grow numb to our commission, our purpose to make disciples? And actually spend more time on huddling up with people that are like us, sound like us, we're comfortable with. And my daddy used to say it this way. Does your Saturday night match up with your Sunday morning? Because if this is the gathering place, and this is where we meet together, but the temple of the Lord is here, then I'd say outside these walls is the court of the Gentiles, wouldn't that be? You weren't making a mess in the court of the Gentiles this past week, were you? Because they're watching. And they're being very judgmental, not on you, but the God you represent and the way you handle yourself. You say, you just ruined this message, Pastor. No, that's the one that this runs just about everybody through. So if Christ is angry, it's justified. It's because he alone gets to say how certain things are done. And when we stray from that, remember, he's jealous. He bought us with his blood. He has others he has paid for as well. He has sheep that we know not of. And if we do these kind of things, we got to watch. Because we might just hear the crack of a whip. He's not going to go lightly on that type of a violation. And then I wrote down last here. Well, next to last. How many times if we get torqued in the church setting, if we're really honest, 
And we had to write down on a sheet of paper that had two columns. God's glory and my glory. What are we mad about? Jesus was mad about his father's glory. He wasn't getting it. Most of the stuff we get mad about in the church is because it, it's our glory that we're cracking a whiff over, right? So that's the final thing we need to learn from all this. Jesus did this right, and there's a way for us to do it right as well. And the only thing we have permission to get mad about is when our Father isn't getting His glory. And then we've got to make sure that we do it correctly, noting where in the army of God we are. There's no higher general than Jesus. He can get away with things we cannot. And then lastly, there's one more time in the Gospels where Jesus refers to the house of the Lord. There are others, but this is the last. We just read the beginning where he said, My Father's house shouldn't be a house of merchandise. This one here, he tells the Jews, Your house is left unto you desolate. Because that's what they saw it as. Not his father's house. It was their house. It was their possession. And he said, it's empty. Lord, have mercy on the churches that are empty these days. Not because there are no people inside. But because they've actually bought the mortgage or something. And some type of... What do they call those things where they bundle up together a bunch of bad loans and then sell them off as if they're worth something and then crash the market later. That might fit. But you know what? I've been here a number of months and I have seen God's hand in this place and I've felt His Spirit in this place and do you know where I've seen it? In the air like it's magic, mystical? No. Nope. I've seen it in his people who look like him. And you're to be encouraged, not commended, encouraged for looking like your daddy. And we'll try to do a better job at that. There's always room for improvement, isn't it? And we thank the Lord for that as a gift of grace. And the only hope we've got to maintain it is to make sure we stick very close to his word. Because that's where we'll know what he expects. But with all this said, we've got much to think about, much to be accountable to. This one, I actually think, is much lighter on the what do we understand part and much heavier on the how do we obey part. What do you say? So we've got much to ask the Lord for. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this service and for this, your word and for a story told by John of what took place. This is real evidence to convince people that you are who you say you are. And Lord, I ask that through this, those that know you and know your voice as your sheep, you call them, would listen to the rebuke and learn from our misunderstandings. Treat this place as you designed it to be understood. Lord, that we would be what we need to be to share you with others who need to hear the rest of the story. Lord, I thank you for Wake Chapel and for its faithfulness, especially to its word and to each other. Lord, I do believe you work through us. 
But Lord, make us usable. And use us in this area. As you intended your people to be used. As a blessing to the rest of the world. Lord, we thank you for these things. Because of your grace. We ask it all in your name. Amen. Please, please pray with me. Uh, Father, um, thank you for the opportunity, the privilege it's been together in the name of Jesus Christ and worship you today. Um, we pray for the mission of the week, Siloam Missionary Homes. Uh, we pray that you will continue to protect them and provide for them. We pray that you'll send encouragers their way. Um, thank you that our church can partner with them with, uh, through our prayers and giving and, and through our work there. Uh, Father, we, uh, we put our hope and trust in you. Uh, may the Holy Spirit be with us and guide us this week. Uh, may we represent you well. In Jesus' name, amen.